0: bibles to ezra chapter 7 ezra chapter 7 looking at the second half of this chapter tonight and um, it's about pagan godliness pagan godliness pagans can be godly too just as god had worked in the heart and the mind of king cyrus and in the heart of king darius He also moved in the heart and the mind of King Artaxerxes to allow Ezra and his people to go back to their land. Like I said, pagans can be godly too. And these three kings, they were pagan kings. But God used them to work out his will in the people's lives and to carry out his will for the people. After he heard, that is, after King Artaxerxes heard Ezra's request, he took several steps to help out the Jews in this important mission. So let's read now from chapter 7, verses 11 through 26. Beginning in verse 11, it says, This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe. Notice, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Perfect peace and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors, the seven counselors will be a type of his Supreme Court. And his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And whereas you are to carry the silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also, the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax. "'tribute or custom on any of the priests, "'Levites, singers, gatekeepers, "'nethanim, or servants of this house of God. "'And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, "'set magistrates and judges, "'who may judge all the people "'who are in the region beyond the river, "'all such as know the laws of your God, "'and teach those who do not know them. "'Whoever will not observe the law of your God "'and the law of the king, "'let judgment be executed speedily on him.' Whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment, here in these verses we have the commission or the instruction that the Persian Emperor Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, and he gave Ezra authority to act for the good of the Jews, and it was a very generous and complete and uh, uh, you know commission, and it was way more than what could have been expected by the people. The letter began. Artaxerxes king of kings which was interesting but again to again call himself the king of kings is a way is way too high of a title for any earthly man to take upon himself now he probably was a king of kings but to speak of himself or a king of some kings but to speak of himself as if as if he were the king or a king of all kings Uh, He was taking it for granted uh, his privilege to have all power both in heaven and on earth The words in verse 11 the priest speaking of ezra the priest the scribe expert Describes ezra with special praise Ezra is referred to as the scribe's scribe or the teacher's scribe Now there's no doubt that this wasn't expected to happen That a second persian pagan king would show favor towards god's people and god's work But what we have here in King Artaxerxes' case is another example of pagan godliness. He was a good pagan sinner. We see in him, it's faith. We see in in paganism, the faith. Verse 23, it says, Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done. He commanded that. So it seems that King Artaxerxes totally believed in the existence and the power of Jehovah God. It's important to see that King Artaxerxes speaks about God, not as just the God of Judea or the God of the Jews, but as the God of heaven. So, you know, where did he get this understanding? What brought him to this place where he understood God to be the God of heaven? Mostly, if not totally, it was from what he saw in the life of the Jews while they were around his palace. They were probably really good witnesses of Jehovah God. He saw saw how strong their conviction was in Jehovah God. He saw how they refused to get involved in the evil ways of the land and the people where they lived. They didn't follow the old saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Jesus said, you are not of the world. He said, therefore, do not. John said, therefore, do not love the world nor the things in the world. James, in chapter 1, verse 27, says to keep oneself spotted from the world. When James says to keep oneself unspotted from the world, the word to keep, it means regular, continuous action. In other words, we are to keep on keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. It's a continual duty of Christians. No exceptions allowed. Those who belong to God are to be characterized. They are to be marked by moral and spiritual purity, by unstained, that is, unblemished holiness. Peter admonished believers in 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19. He said, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received, or, uh, received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, blemish and without spot. Neither James nor Peter is talking about sinless perfection here, which is a human condition, spiritual condition, that only Jesus manifested in his incarnation when he was here on earth. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7.20 assures us of the fact, he said, there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. And even though Paul could honestly say, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day, He also admitted, I know nothing against myself. In other words, I don't know anything wrong that I've done. He says, yet I'm not justified by that. But he who judges me is the Lord. He says, and I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will, the will to do good is present with me. But how to perform it, what is good, I don't know. I can't find out how to do that. For the good that I will do, I don't do. But the evil... I will not to do that I don't want to do. That's what I end up doing. Every Christian falls short of God's standards. Just like Paul, we find ourselves doing things that we know are wrong and not doing things that we know are right. And even the most faithful and loving believer doesn't always show as much compassion as he should or doesn't love his fellow believers as he should or love God as he should. James is talking about, in chapter 127, the basic character of our lives, of our indispensable commitment and loyalty to God. If that loyalty to God is right, then our deepest desire is going to be to love. It's going to be to love and to care for others and to confess our selfish sin to the Lord when we don't do those things. You see, the true Christian cannot really be happy or pleased when they fail to show compassion to others. It's not our perfection that proves our salvation. It's hating our imperfections and seeking with God's help and his power to correct them, to change them. And in his innermost heart, the true Christian desires to speak and to do only those things that are pure, that are holy, that are loving, that are honest, truthful and upright things that are uncorrupted and and unspotted by this world on the other hand a person who doesn't have compassion for other people and isn't concerned about living righteously and whose satisfaction that is their their gratification is found in their sin cannot be a true disciple of jesus christ and a child of god the word world that James uses when he said we are to keep unspotted from the world. The world word world means or has the basic meaning of order, arrangement, and sometimes of adornment. And in the New Testament, it's used figuratively of the earth and the universe. But it's most often used to represent fallen mankind in general and its, un- and its ungodly spiritual systems of philosophy and morals and values. That's the sense. That's the way James uses it uh, in James 1.27 when he says, keep ourselves unspotted from the world. And with that meaning, a world that's obviously in mind, that's where John comes in and he warns, do not love the world nor the things in the world. He said, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pr- boastful pride of life is not from the father but it's of the world you see love of god and love of the world and the things of the world are totally incompatible and they can't exist in the same heart the phrase that james uses the things of the world or john uses the things of the world it doesn't pertain to things that are that that we do every day like you know working or participating in business or, or being involved in, in, in social activities or buying or, or using the material necessities that we have to have for life. It's, ta- it's the taking precedence over love of and allegiance to things that are, uh, that are ungodly and come between men and God. And in other words, it, it's, it's, it's those things, when it talks about the things of the world, it's those things that take priority over our life. Take priority over loving God and and being loyal to God. You know, taking prior over ungodly or godly things, those things that come between God and man. Godly religion, in other words, biblical Christianity is a matter of obedience, holy obedience to God's word. And you know what? It's reflected in other ways. You know, it's reflected by our honesty when it comes to ourselves it's reflected by our selflessness when it comes to the needs of other people and it's reflected by our uncompromising moral and spiritual stand when it comes to this world now Ezra and God's people they didn't worship the pagan people's idols they didn't they didn't worship the pagan people's gods nor did they follow their superstitions and ceremonies And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. King Artaxerxes saw their purity of life. He saw the people's godliness. He saw their diligence in living for God and for serving God. And probably Ezra's own character and behavior also was a powerful testimony and an influence on Artaxerxes' mind. You know, you, you you just don't see those things and say, oh, okay, and walk away. You know, I remember seeing, you know, Pastor when you know, like you said, knowing him and going to high school with him and, and being around him all the time and the things that he did. Seeing him come to Christ and making that radical change. There was not a day that went by that I did not think of it because it was so radical. It was so unlike him and it was trying to figure it out and just it, it made such an impact on my life because it was unnatural and I believe that's the kind of testimony that we need to have that will speak to people's minds and hearts and you see the captives these captives these people God's people they live the truth and the king became subject to that truth But in the end, hard times will drive away superficial faith. We see also it's fear. It says in verse 23, he said, the king said, why should there be wrath against the realm of the king? You see, King Artaxerxes had at least enough sense to fear the living God. And he wanted to appease the living God. He wanted to make him happy. He want, Because he wanted to turn away his wrath. <laughs> and this is why, and it's always been the main reason for pagan godliness. It's really a scheme of gaining power and preventing God's wrath rather than reverencing his goodness and enjoying his love. Why did King Artaxerxes exempt the temple workers from paying taxes in verse 24? Because he recognized that the priests and the Levites had an important role in society as spiritual leaders. So he exempted them from the burden of paying taxes. Now the Bible doesn't teach tax exemption for religious employees. But King Artaxerxes, a pagan king, recognized and supported that principle. And today churches have the responsibility to keep worldly burdens off of the backs of spiritual workers. He said in verse 28, King Artaxerxes says in verse 28, No, he says, I will let you go. He said, take money, take the vessels. He said, take whatever you need. And he said, charge my people taxes to pay for your expenses. He said, go ahead and sacrifice, you know, and pray. Reason being, verse 23, why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Now, he was doing this so that God, the wrath of God wouldn't come upon him. We see that with Pharaoh in Exodus 8, 24 through 32. Listen to what it says there. Again, when the plagues came. When the thick swarm of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into the house of his servants, it says, and into all the land of Egypt, it says the land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Notice, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron, and he said, go sacrifice to your God in the land. Just like our exercise says that, go, go and and worship your God. Pharaoh said, go and, and, you know, uh, go and sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses says, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? This is what he said. He said, we will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go, just like King Artaxerxes, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. So Pharaoh said, again, intercede for me. Notice, pray for me. <laughs> I'll let you go. You know, go in and do what you need to do, but pray for me. Intercede for me. Then Moses said, indeed, I am going out from you and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did, according to the word of Moses, he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. It's a scheme. Now, I'm tired of these flies. I'm tired of these plugs. Or the, the, these plague. All right, You go. You worship. You do whatever you got to do. Make sure you pray for me. But you know what? You go. And... Uh, Hoping that, that you know, God would, you know, would, would take away the plagues and everything would be okay. But it says, notice, he wouldn't let the people go. Missionaries see this all the time. Their fear, the, 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 the heathens fear of God's judgments and their attempts to stop it seems to be a common occurrence, which is the real reason for pagan godliness. Now, fear is not a false or wrong principle in religion. God gave us that emotion. Psalm 111.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Hebrews 1.7, it says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an, an ark for the saving of his household. Psalm 76.7, it says, You yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry. But you see, being good, doing good, isn't good enough with god it has to become something higher than that greater than that it must turn to reverence for god it must turn to trust in the living god love for the living god obedience to the living god thirdly we see in this pagan godliness is its occasional commendable behavior artaxerxes behavior towards god's people couldn't have been better He freely let them go, even though they were valuable to him. Verse 13 says that he let them go back to their own land. Verses 14 and 15 say that he gave freely himself, and he invited his attendants to also give of their possessions to help pay for their trip home. In verse 16, it says he gave full permission to Ezra to get all all that he could from his own fellow citizens. Verses 17 through 18, Artaxerxes took measures for the same assistance to be approved, uh, I'm sorry, to, to be approved beyond the river Euphrates. And he gave Ezra the authority to exercise political power, telling him also to perform his functions as a teacher of the law of God in verse 25. So King Artaxerxes, this pagan king, did his best to help carry out the cause that he supported. But we, as believers, we have even an even greater responsibility upon us, because you see, we live in a greater light than they did. We we know of Christ. We have the full Word of God. You see, King Artaxerxes and the people they lived in the types and the shadows of the things to come. We have the substance. We are to work out all of, to work with all of our strength, not just with our physical bodies. But also we're to work with our mind and our heart on anything that we do for God and his people. Paul said, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to man. But of this pagan godliness, we have to see its defects, its defect. Now, King Artaxerxes, as good as far is and as as far as he went doing good, He didn't go far enough. His goodness didn't go far enough. It wasn't good enough. Having some faith, having some fear, having some good behavior is not enough. King Artaxerxes had just enough faith in God to fear God. He had just enough fear of God to go through all this work on this one occasion to try to keep God from being angry with him. But Artaxerxes did not surrender to God. He didn't give his life to God. He didn't give God the most important thing God wants, and that was a place in his heart. That's the most important thing God wants from us a place in his heart. He didn't have, King Artaxerxes didn't have the required respect and reverence for God that would have made him put away his superstitions and his wrongdoing. See, true godliness will do that. It will change you. It will change a person. They will become new creatures, as Paul said. The old things, the old things of life, they'll pass away and everything becomes new. That's real, that's true salvation. It will change your life. True godliness is giving to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ, the highest place in our hearts. And it makes him God, not ourselves. It makes him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It makes him the sovereign ruler of our soul, the Lord of our life. All of God's people do this very thing. It's not a one-time all-out effort like this one of King Artaxerxes. It's a continuous, everyday, godly effort, moment by moment. It's lifting our heart up to God every single day. It's allowing God to control our feelings. It's allowing God to control our will. It's allowing God to shape and to guide our words and our works. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's allowing God in all of our relationships and in every place. That's the kind of godliness that pleases God. In Ezekiel 33, 30 through 32, and this is where a lot of people, this is what a lot of people do. It says, as for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, listen, they were saying, oh, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. God says, so they hear your words. They come to you as people do. They sit before you as as my people. And they hear what you have to say. They hear your words, but here it is. They do not do them. He says, for with their mouth, they show a lot of love. Oh, they probably, oh, we love you. And they speak a lot about love. But it says their hearts pursue their own gain. He said, indeed, you are to them like a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can, can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. In other words, God would say, no, these people, you know, it's like, you know, it's like listening to somebody who sings well. Oh, listen to how beautiful, oh, I could just listen to them all day. Oh, it's such a lovely song. They have such a pleasant voice. Oh, and they can play the instrument so well. And the people were coming to hear exactly that in the house of God. They loved to hear the word. They were were being entertained, They heard the words, but they didn't do them. Paul said, having a a form of godliness, but denying its power. Do you really love God in your heart? And with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. These people in Ezekiel gave the appearance of following God. They gave an appearance of faith. Oh, come on, let's go see what the word has to say. And a lot of people give the appearance, the appearance of loving God. The people were coming to listen to Isaiah, to Ezekiel preach. But you know what? They were only coming to be enter- entertained. They weren't really interested in hearing the message that God had that he was speaking through Ezekiel. They weren't interested in hearing the message from God. They weren't interested in them putting that word into practice and they weren't interested in letting it change their lives. And a lot of people go to church to be entertained. Oh, I like church. You know, it makes me feel so good. And, you know, I like the music. And, oh, you know, it really, you know, it, it, make, it moves me emotionally. And, you know, the people are nice. And I really enjoy, you know, the speaker. And, and I enjoy the activities. But they don't take the message to heart. They don't look. They don't seek to be challenged or to serve God. Have we brought church services down to the level of entertainment? In many churches, yes. Does your worship really have an impact on your life? Are you just, are you just occupying a spot? Do you leave the church different than the way you came in? Do you listen to God's words and then obey them? Do you apply his words to your life? Do you put them into practice in your life? In Isaiah twenty nine thirteen, it says, Therefore the Lord said, Notice, Inasmuch as these people, they draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but they have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. See, it's not a godly fear. The people said they were close to God, but they were disobedient and they were just going through the motions so God would bring judgment on you see religion had become routine instead of real Warren Wiersbe said this religious people have enough morality to keep them out of trouble but not enough righteousness to get them into heaven it's not bad things that keep us away from Jesus it's good things you have to lose religion to find salvation and in Matthew 15:8 Jesus quoted this very text from Isaiah condemning Israel's hypocrisy when he spoke to the Pharisees, Israel's religious leaders. Too many times we fall into routine patterns. When we come to church and we worship and we neglect to give God our love and our devotion. We just do our duty. If we want to be called God's people, we need to be obedient and we need to worship him honestly and sincerely. Let's look at verses 27 through 28 now in closing. 27 and 28. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. Notice that God put this in this pagan king's heart to do this to help uh, them to rebuild the house of God in the temple. Notice, he put this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. So in Ezra's closing prayer here, in his closing praise to God, he acknowledges... That only God can turn the heart of a king. And when we face life's challenges, we often have to work diligently and with extraordinary effort. Realizing that God oversees all of our work. So we need to recognize God's hand in our successes. And we need to remember to praise him for his help and his protection. Ezra praised God for all that God had done for him and through him. Ezra had honored God throughout his life. And God chose to honor Ezra. Now, Ezra could have taken it for granted that, you know what? Oh, it was my greatness. It was my charisma. My personality that won over the king and his princes. But he gave the credit to God. We also need to be thankful to God for our successes and not to think that we did it in our own power. And Ezra praises the Lord for moving the king to work together with his plans. And he sees this occasion as proof of God's mercy or his covenant love. Ezra didn't take any credit for this accomplishment. And he recognized it was all the result of the good hand of God that was upon him and without wasting any time he gathered together the the, the chief men of the tribes he gathered together the people who felt moved to go to jerusalem with him and after ezra saw how the king was being good towards him and his people he can't he can't go on any further without first thanking god for his goodness to him and his people you know in this situation and as soon as he finished reading the king's letter, instead of adding, God save the king, which would have been proper, notice what he says, blessed be the Lord. Because we have to thank God for everything and recognize his good hand in everything and praise him for it. There's two things that Ezra blessed God for. First of all, for the king's commission. For the king being with him and, and, and allowing him to go and to provide whatever he needed to accomplish his mission as was the king, king uh, as was the custom he probably you know kissed the king's hand for it but that wasn't all he said blessed be the lord god who put something like this think of it god put something like this into the king's heart you see god can put things into men's hearts and minds that normally wouldn't come up by themselves both by God's providence and by his grace when it comes to things dealing with life and godliness. If there's any good in our hearts or in others' hearts, we need to recognize it was God who put it there and bless him for it. Because it's God that works in us both to do, uh, to will and to do what's good. Psalm 73, one says, truly God is good. Romans seven eighteen Paul says, for I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Whatever is good is of God. And when princes and judges do things to hold back wickedness and encourage religion, we need to thank God that he put it in their hearts to do so. And when I think of that, I think of the elections that are coming up real soon. And I know people don't care for this president. President. I see him as a King Cyrus. I see him as a King Darius and a King Artaxerxes. With our nation so politically divided and the Democrats and the mainstream media so constantly spreading lies about the president and his administration, it's hard to get the honest facts about what he wants to do and, and, and to the American people all across the country. The few, I believe with all my heart, the future of our nation is at stake. And if you can't see it and you don't know it, you are blind. Whoever wins the White House and control of the Senate and the House of Representatives will ultimately determine the course of our country for decades to come. If you look at what the other side is espousing, they are going to take away our religious rights and our, and our love and our truth of the word of God. Hillary Clinton said she was going to do that when she ran for president if she was elected. She said she was going to make the church change its beliefs. We need to look for men or women. We need to look for people, regardless of what party, who are going to stand for biblical principles like these pagan kings did. The most important thing we need to look for is somebody that will stand up for our religious freedoms. And our president right now is doing that. Job said, the earth is give, if that doesn't happen, like Job said, the earth is given into the hand of the wicked. Now for me, I may have only 10 years or so left on the earth, but your, your children and your grandchildren will be stuck in a wicked, godless society. Look at the things they're doing in the schools right now. Look at what they're trying to teach your kids, our kids, our grandkids. Things that they shouldn't be taught till they're older. Forced to, to forced to accept. The psalmist said in Psalm eleven three, if the foundations are destroyed, which people right now running for office are attempting to destroy the foundations that this nation was built on. That we are so blessed to experience and, and to enjoy. The principles that this nation was founded on. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David was God's appointed king, so anything that attacked him personally would shake the very foundations of the nation. God had abandoned Saul as king and Absalom. Because God had never chosen that God didn't choose them. The people chose them. Just like the people chose Saul. And read the chapter where Saul was hanging. Six times it says he took. He took the people. He, he forced them into the mill. He took their taxes. He took, he took, he took. And that's exactly what will happen. God abandoned Saul as king and, ab- and absent because God did not choose them. And both men, both those kings weakened the foundations of God's government read it for yourself society was built on truth our society was built on truth the truth of the word of God and when truth is questioned or it's denied the foundations are shaken so what can we do what can the righteous do the answer is to lay the foundations again every new generation must see to it that the foundations of truth and justice are solid When when God's house was built, Ezra, Ezra rejoiced in what was done to beautify it. We don't read anywhere that it was painted over or covered with gold or decorated with precious stones. But you can be sure that the laws of God were performed there continually and carefully and exactly according to the law of God. And that's what made the temple beautiful. Not only was the temple to be rebuilt, it was also to be beautified. God's house should be made beautiful. It should be made as beautiful as it can possibly be because God's people identify with it. To beautify the house of the Lord is a reference to the reestablishment of moral, spiritual, and religious life. This is what truly makes the Lord's house beautiful. It's the people. It's the moral and the spiritual and the religious life of the people. The second thing that Ezra blessed God uh, for is for the the encouragement that that he gave to to carry out the work. It says in verse uh, 28, he has extended mercy to me, Ezra said. And Ezra himself credits his position of honor totally to God's mercy. It was because of the Lord that Ezra found favor with the king. Ezra was a man of courage, and yet he gave the credit for his encouragement, not to himself, but to God's hand. He said, I was encouraged to do the work as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, to direct me and to support me. If God gives us his hand, we're courageous and joyful. If he takes his hand away from us, we are weak like a broken reed. Whatever service God enables us to do for him in our generation, God must give all of the glory for it. Strength to do comes from God. So the praise for it must be given to God. Recognize his hand in your success and remember to praise him for his help and his protection. Ezra praised God for everything that he had done for him and through him. Ezra could have taken for granted that it, it was his own greatness. Like I said, his own charm that won over the king, Artaxerxes and his leaders. But he gave God the credit. And we should also be grateful for our success and not think that we did it in our own power. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for your truths, God. Father, help us to be men and women not who see truth. Lord, who are not moved by pictures and, and, and news articles, Lord. Help us not to be moved by our emotions, Lord. But by truth and what's important, God. Lord, help us to stand upon biblical principles, God. Help us to stand upon the truth of God. The standards of God the will of God <clears throat> but not moved by popularity or by polls for with God we are a majority maybe you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ maybe you're like a lot of good people you do some good things you have some faith you have some fear of God but it hasn't changed your life you haven't given God that special place in your heart good enough, being good enough is not good enough for God. We must be born again, the Bible says. We must become new creatures in Christ. The old life, the old habits, the sins of our life must be done away with. We must repent, turn and walk away from them and live for Christ as he empowers us and enables us to break that bondage of sin that that holds us. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship and if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's time to stop being good in the pagan sense and a time to be righteous in the biblical sense. As we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll say uh, we'll say together a simple prayer of faith.